Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. Today's date is June 21st, and we're going to jump right in. Uh, Ronaldo, we have a lot to cover on today's show, so let's start with uh, a major victory we had as an organization. Great. Thanks, Matt, and welcome, everybody. Yeah, it's kind of fun. In, in this in this line of work where we're trying to help people do the right thing and get the right result, it, it, it's a long time between victories usually, but today there was a major one. As many of you know, we've been fighting the closure for the closure of Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant uh, after our successful efforts in the San Onofre nuclear power plant. Diablo is the last power plant, nuclear power plant in California. And uh, there was just a major release done this morning. Uh, PG&E, the owner of the plant, has signed a document basically saying that they agree that this plant is not going to get past its current licensing of 24-25, 2024-2025. So we're glad that that point has been settled because we said this plant should never be relicensed. So congratulations, PG&E, for getting realistic and taking that issue off the table. We all know the plant should go, even PG&E. The second thing they've agreed to is they've agreed that 100% of the plant's energy could be replaced by renewables. That's a major statement because we've been saying that for ages at the Academy, and now it looks like PG&E is finally agreeing. That's also off the table. So no more do we have to hear this question, gee, if we close a nuclear power plant, can we get enough renewables to run it? Even PG&E says that we can. The third thing that they agreed to is a major thing that we started to hear a few little, little while ago now. We took the position at the World Business Academy that labor has done nothing wrong. It's not their fault these plants exist and that they are faulty technically. Uh, they're uh, expensive. They create waste. There's all the reasons why nuclear energy doesn't make sense. And for those of you who are unclear as to any of those, particularly those of you who consider yourself environmentalists, there's been a lot of talk lately about nuclear as an answer to climate change. It isn't. It's the worst thing we could do for climate change. Please, if you think that's possible, that it could help us with climate change or that's good for the environment. We have a white paper. Uh, where can they find that, Matt? It's on our website, um, and I'll find the exact link for everyone. But also, if you would like to see that white paper, feel free to email us at info at worldbusiness.org. So the, the, the fourth thing that, that I'm mentioning that PG&E agreed to is they agreed to a position we've taken now for a while that labor who did nothing wrong, they're not the guys who designed this plant. They're not the guys who approved the plant. They're not the women who, who have um, created the waste. So we shouldn't punish them when we close these plants. So we've been arguing that there has to be an accommodation for labor, and I'm glad that the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, is going to be protected on some basis. Now, we believe the protection that IBEW has got received is, is not specific enough to make me happy. I don't think it's, the specificity is lacking. So let's see, you know, my, my mother used to say, God is in the details. So let's see... And the reason she said that, by the way, Matt, is because she couldn't say the idea that devil was in the details. So she changed it. <laughs> My mother was a very, very spiritual woman. Anyway, the point of the story is there is the, there's not enough teeth in the agreement to protect labor, but we like the acknowledgement that labor needs protection. That's a good thing. Now, what's wrong with this agreement? Well, it's a partial victory because even though they've agreed to all these things for the normal licensing period, which ends in 2024, 2025, they did not agree that it may be that under the law of the state of California, as the Academy has argued, this plant should not be legally operating today because it never received a CEQA. And therefore, in order for its permit to draw water from the ocean to be renewed, 
it must have a CEQOR Environmental Quality Act review. Uh, CEQOR stands for California Environmental Quality Act. So we at the Academy believe that that's still the law of the land, that's still the law of the state of California, and we believe that uh, when the State Lands Commission does its job and has a CEQA, we believe that they will find at least two grounds on which this plant is unsafe for humans. Number one, the seismic activity, it's, it's built on top of six fault lines, and there are seven more nearby, total of 13 fault lines. The thing is sitting on eggshell, the cracked eggshell at that, and that's very dangerous because if one of those fault lines were to erupt into an earthquake of seven magnitude or more, that plant would do a terrible, terrible, terribly destructive thing to everybody living in the San Luis Obispo area and downwind from it in Santa Barbara. Number two, we believe that uh, the evidence will show, and we've just commissioned a new study that will be out shortly, that literally at least 10 additional children will die needlessly each year that plant remains open over and above all the natural causes for childhood death. So if somebody could please tell me which 10 kids they want to kill, maybe I'd have a different view of this. But I don't think 10 children deserve to die for no good reason just because that plant stays open. Every year, yeah. Every every year. year Every year. So another nine years is 90 children, 90 to 100 kids will die. And that's not including forms of cancer which don't lead to death, which also are part of the study. So we're going to continue to argue that great for what you did so far, folks, but now let's get to the final the final issue, which is what is the sequel going to say when we do a sequel review of that plant? Is it environmentally safe? I don't think it is, but let's see what the government concludes when it does the sequel. And I'm hopeful that it will, in fact, as the law requires it to, do a sequel. And the reason we wanted to start the show with this uh, declaration of a partial victory is we're, we're really proud of all of our allies and all the people who've been fighting on this issue, and we're just happy to be a part of this fight. You know, I, I think that's we've done some of the more sophisticated filings on this issue, and we've been really rallying uh, the community here in Santa Barbara around this issue. Um, and that's why we're committed to continuing to get a better deal. Yeah, and I want to give a particular shout-out to Linda Seeley and, and the Mothers for Peace up in San Obispo. Those women have been fighting this plant for 40 years, and they've they're the ones who've kept it in the forefront. They're the ones who frankly came to us years ago and asked us to get involved. So without Linda Seeley and these wonderful, very capable women, uh, Mothers for Peace, uh, we wouldn't be here today celebrating the partial victory and we wouldn't be contemplating how to get a final victory at all. So speaking of uh, victories, Ronaldo, uh, there was just a report coming out from, uh, I, I misplaced the group name, uh, about the, oh sorry, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Urban Institute uh, that says that Obamacare will create $2.6 trillion in savings over the next five years as compared to the course we were on uh, in terms of health care spending in this country. So that's $2.6 trillion less going towards health spending, and that could be used in more productive ways. And by the way, that's only over a five-year period, Matt. So what you're talking about is $2.6 trillion today. I'm... I've been a big proponent of Obamacare since the beginning. I've said it will slow the rate of increase of health care costs, uh, which have been ballooning out of proportion for two decades, maybe three at this point. And um, I saw the beginning of the end of that careening juggernaut of expense. And I said, wow, not only are we going to have 40 million more people insured, which is huge, but we're going to be paying less for it. And if you wonder why you can pay less and have 40 million more people insured, there's two major causes. One is 
We pay when those people get sick. It's just we pay emergency room rates. Have you folks ever paid an emergency room bill? They're enormous. They're bigger than regular hospital bills. So if you can keep somebody out of the emergency room, that's a huge savings right off the bat. The second way you save money, actually there's three ways. The second way you save money is you get people care while it's still time. It's, you can do more on the prophylactic end. So for, there's a whole lot of work. In fact, the New York Times had a story on this today about diabetes intervention. If you can intervene with people who are overweight, even people who are on um, food bank assistance, if you can intervene and address the diabetic preconditions and the diabetic conditions they're under, and you can help educate them on how higher protein, lower sugar, etc., diet, um, that you can then reduce the cost of the long-term care of diabetes, which is enormous. And the third way you save money is if you have if you have a universal health care approach like we're now getting towards, the the government created a series of standards for the first time that are meaningful for what people should be allowed to charge to these various exchanges for health care coverage. And so it's introduced competitive bidding within the insurance industry, which really didn't exist, and it's also including much more transparency. So people know easier what they're paying and what they're getting. Those things alone all cause this drop. Now, the good news is the $2.6 trillion being saved over five years, that 2.6 is just the beginning of the down payment. Not only will you continue to get that $2.6 billion every five years, but you, that number will grow. So the savings for the next five years will be more than $2.6 trillion. So all of a sudden, we're starting to do smart things in this country, and isn't it about time? Uh, healthcare, or Obamacare as it's sometimes called, was one of those really smart decisions. In fact, it didn't go far enough, and I'm hoping that uh, we, there will continue to be pressure, as I see right now from the public at large, for what we would call a true universal health care system. Uh, Bernie Sanders got a long way talking about it. Uh, Hillary Clinton seems closer to embracing that position. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to see increasing improvements to finally get the health care costs in this country under control and, frankly, improve the health of the American people in the process. So let's stay on the domestic front, Ronaldo, and talk about the recent U.S. jobs numbers, uh, an issue that Every month, you know, the job numbers are published, and they are, tend to be an indicator of the health of the economy. Um, last month's were oh, you have it. Last month's we, we saw a drop in the number of jobs added to uh, thirty-eight thousand, uh, and then despite that, unemployment continued to drop to four point seven percent. So, what, what's your take? What's going on here? Okay, well, first of all. There was more good news in that report than bad news. I, I, here's the, my, gosh, folks, the most important thing I can say, if you can remember just one thing from the show, is don't read headlines only. If you, if you really want to know something, you can't read the headline and skim the article. You really got to look at what's behind the headline, what's underneath the headline. The headline was, job growth slows. Now, the next headline was, we now have unemployment at the lowest level since way before 2008. It's at 4.7% unemployment. Well, how could it be at 4.7% unemployment if job growth slowed this month? A couple of simple answers. First of all, the economy has been adding jobs every month for the last six years. So if you keep adding jobs every month for the last six years, and you're adding them faster than new people are coming into the labor force, your unemployment rate goes down. 4.7% is so low that it is probably at the point of what's called structural unemployment, meaning 
the natural friction in the economy of people changing jobs, coming and going, entering the workplace and uh, workforce and leaving the workforce, that normal transition in, by economists is called structural unemployment, meaning below that you can't really move. And that's what this 38,000 means. It, it, it's saying we're getting to the point where there's, we're so close to structural unemployment, we can't keep hiring tons of people because, frankly, we're all working and there aren't that many people looking. In fact, um, let me take that a little deeper. Buried in that number of unemployment that month, so the total was 38,000, 34,000 people were on strike for Verizon in that month only alone. So those 34,000 will automatically come back on the rolls this month in June. So right off the bat, that doubled what the job growth would have been but for the Verizon strike, which was temporary. In addition, if you look at the, um, you know, the one of the most important things I look at when I look at these job numbers is I look to see what's happening to real wages. And, and I like to look at average hourly wages, non-farm payroll. <laughs> Obvious why we look at the non-farm payroll. <laughs> Because we aren't a nation of farmers anymore. We're, pay, we're, we're urban dwellers. So if you look at non-farm payroll, you're really getting a, a snapshot of where the average American is. And right now, if, it, for years since the recession ended, our, our um, wage growth was stuck at about 2%, which is not bad. A 2% per year is, you know, given that we have almost no inflation, 2% is real wage gain. This month, it's jumped to 2.5%. That's a big jump in one month. That's a very, very big jump. So real wages rose $0.05 cents in May on a base of twenty five fifty nine. meaning that if, if you take that half a point on top of the two points that are always, that's a 25% gain in real wages in one month. That's a big number, and believe me, it caught the Fed's attention. The Fed is not asleep at the switch. They know that those kind of wage gains are a, are a automatic, you can't avoid it, thing that happens when you get close to structural unemployment because you start to start paying people to come to work and you can't pay the minimum because there's enough people out there with jobs now that you've got to pay enough to make it attractive. I know one of my little fun surveys I do for myself uh, is I like to, when I drive around town or I'm just going about my day, I like to see how many unemployment signs, I mean, want, help wanted signs there are. And I got to tell you, I'm seeing them everywhere now. Yeah. I'm seeing them everywhere. In fact, I saw one, there's a local hamburger chain here in California, which is very popular. It's now a public company called the Hamburger Habit. And I, when I saw the sign on their door, I, I, I almost stopped. I should have taken a picture. And what it said is, uh, uh, now hiring positions immediately available listed three categories, including cashier, cook, and I forget what the third one was. And then it went on to say uh, opening salaries in the $10 to $15 range, $10.50 to $15. So that's way above minimum wage, right? I mean, that's yeah. $10.50 is above the federal minimum wage substantially. What's the California minimum wage? I think it is $10. I think it's probably $10, yeah, not $10.50. 10, right. So it's 50 cents above minimum wage. So they're saying if you come in and you are a classic minimum wage person, we'll even pay you 50 cents an hour more than that. Oh, and if you can talk us into it, we'll get you all the way to the fifteen. Because we are out of people. Right. So that wage push is very real. And that's part of why I'm thinking the Fed may increase um, the interest rate in July. I want to come back to the Fed later. But I want to do one more thing on this, uh, this uh, conversation about 
um, we're having on, on on job growth. I mean, this was this was panned as bad news in the media. Right. That's what I'm saying. You got to read below the headline. Right. The media doesn't. They, they don't do their homework first of all, and then they don't try to understand what the real numbers mean. They tend to do a groupthink too. I mean, yes, they're you, very lemming like. You, you get a couple people out there that everyone listens to who are the first reactors and kind of move the market depending on the you know on, on the job report, but they're not drilling down for the truth. They're just trying to be first. Uh, and I, I feel like most most financial reporters are are they do read the whole report, but then they kind of go with the crowd anyway. So you'll you'll get some analysis and some mixed reviews, but then they usually come out saying this is a this is bad news for the U.S. economy. Yeah, I I, I think that, um, but I if you're lazy, you know, you let somebody do your thinking for you. If you're proactive and you want to grab a hold of your own future. You got to be willing to exercise some intelligence, and you got to be willing to look at what the data says. Let me give you an example. Here's a good one, and then I'm going to I'm going to come back with you for another explanation. Right now, we track a thing, um, what we call discouraged workers. Now, that, that's a very broad term, discouraged workers. It means people who we think um, have no job and want one. Uh, we we think it's part-time workers who want a full-time job but can't find one. And other forms of, quote, discouragement. Very broad catch-all. Nobody knows what it really means. But it tends to be a negative number. That number was absolutely flat. It's called, by the way, if you want to track this in the Fed, <laughs> the Fed terminology, it's called U6. Standing, U stands for unemployment, 6. Sixth, um, sixth is the scale that's on. So U6 remained unchanged at 9.7%. So they're saying that if you take everybody that's conceivably discouraged out there, it hasn't gone up. And yet, we only found 38,000 people to hire. So what does that tell you? Structural unemployment. Now, let me explain why that's going on. These numbers, the Fed has never had a problem like the baby boomers before. I know so many baby... I was in a conversation today with a baby boomer about his situation, and he was telling me that he could now afford to quit working because he was at that stage in life where, unless we raised his pay considerably... He could make just as much on his retirement and his Social Security. So if I had offered him $100 an hour, yeah, he probably would have taken a job. But if I say, look, I just want you to do what a normal person would do who's only 60, not 65, he's going, you know what? I like my golden years. I think I'll have some fun. So what's happening is baby boomers are electing not to be in the job market full time because they've got other ways to spend their time. If they're 65 plusers, they're not going to come off the bench to work for minimum wage unless they have to. Now there are many that do, by the way, and I don't want to. I don't want to underestimate how many senior citizens just to eat have to work for minimum wage. And you see them in McDonald's, you see them at Burger King, and they're burger flipping for making a supplemental income to their Social Security because they typically don't have retirement funds. But when you take those that category of people who are distraught, frankly, out. What most baby boomers are saying is, if you're not going to offer me enough money to come into work and I'm already 68 or 69 years old, you know what? I'll figure out something else to do. So I think that's a key insight that you need to have these numbers. One final insight. These numbers do not do a decent job of tracking the correlevant income that somebody makes in the sharing economy. The co-relevant? Yeah. In other words, there, what, is the, what is the equal amount of income you would ascribe to them or the amount of employment you would ascribe to them if they were working for a paycheck instead of for Uber, or if they were not renting out a room in their house, but they do because of Airbnb. Remember, Airbnb is now the largest hotel chain in the world, by far. 
And uh, we know people, in fact, I know some baby boomers who have decided that rather than work more hours, they'd rather augment their income by renting out one of the kids' bedrooms to Airbnb. And it worked pretty well, apparently. And, and I was delighted to hear how many controls are in place so that you're not likely to get somebody crazy in your place. You may, but you're not likely to because they have a rating system and all this. So it's not like you're taking a wild chance. Well, the more baby boomers that realize that they could take one of the kids' bedrooms and turn it into Airbnb, that's income that doesn't show up in these employment numbers, even though it's real income. And the same thing is true with Uber drivers. I mean, I can't tell you how many Uber drivers I've had in the last month that have some other full-time job. It's a big number. So, it, and, and many of them, by the way, are full-time. But there's a number that are, are supplementing their income. That's not showing up in these numbers adequately. So I believe that there, and, and of course, self-employed never shows up well in these numbers. Self-employed really doesn't show up well. So these numbers really work best when you're tracking large commercial activities. We've become a nation of people who are much more entrepreneurial. Uh, there's more Uber drivers every day. There's more Airbnb people every day. And there's more baby boomers every day. And that's what's tending to cause these numbers to look confusing. And when you compare it to structural unemployment, it looks like we're there. So good news. And that means, by the way, folks, real wage gains will continue as we predicted on the show three months ago. That we, we expect to start seeing real wage gains that would start to go push forward. Clearly, this month of May, they did. That's the best piece of news in this entire report. And last piece of news in this report that I think we should focus on is it was reported by a very competent uh, econometric institution that the annual rate of growth for the economy has now surged, quote unquote, from 0.8% at the beginning of the year to a range of 25 to 3%. So as everyone listening to this program knows, last November, December, we said we think we'll get to 3% this year. I think we're there. And I don't see that slowing down in the balance of the year. If anything, it will just get better from here on out. With the one caveat, one, two caveats. One is, Lord knows what will happen. Terrorism is always crazy. We could talk about Orlando. But the second thing is um, the election year. And I don't want to talk about the election, Matt, because I think people are getting enough of that from every other direction. Yeah. But I do think it could have an economic impact if it gets really crazier than it is right now. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, let's let's not even go there just because it gets an inordinate amount of coverage everywhere else, except for the implication that I think there is some real anxiety around uh, what the implications would be for uh, uh, if the election goes one way or the other. So, Ronaldo, let's stay in the U.S. here for a second and talk about the Fed action based on what you've just talked about, about the health of the of the of the job market. Okay, well, it's been widely publicized that the Fed met last week in a special meeting to consider the effects of Brexit. It's the British exit from the European Union. Until uh, Mary Jo, I forget her last name, was murdered, assassinated uh, last week in, in uh, Leeds, England, um, it looked like the British public was going to vote to exit the euro. Mary Jo White? Yeah. And uh, no, 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 not no, Mary Joy. No, 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 Mary Joy White's the security case exchange <laughs> commissioner. No, it's uh, it's. Uh, I'll find out. It starts with a C, I think. Uh, anyway, um, it, that assassination has troubled the British. Uh, the British, unlike the Americans, don't take assassinations lightly. Joe Cox. Joe Cox. That's it, Mary Joy Cox. So, so she's her her assassination um, by a guy, by the way, who used a, a knife because it's too hard to get a gun in Britain. And apparently he had a gun on him that he manufactured himself from a diagram, a plastic gun. Wow. 
Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and, and apparently it was the slashing that killed her more than the gun because it was like a homemade kind of gun. So, you know, it's, they don't have to worry about assault rifles taking out, you know, 50 people at a time and wounding another 50. They, they, they get upsetting when one person dies. Um, I think the Brexit vote's going to be a lot closer, and clearly the Fed is watching it carefully. So the Fed has got to decide whether or not the slowing effect of Brexit. Now, if Brexit occurs, it will be, mark my words, extraordinarily bad for the British. Or as the British themselves would say, bloody awful. <laughs> uh, because, well, I can explain it if you want, and maybe we should save that for the next show to see if it does happen. Do you want me yeah, to save it? Let's talk a little bit about Brexit uh, here because the vote's coming up next week. Yeah, next. No, it's this week on Thursday. Really? It's this Thursday. Oh, wow. You're right. It's right here. from now. Yeah. Okay. And so. and so I think it's running closer now, neck and neck, because of that assassination. But at the end of the day, if Britain elects to go out of the European Union, the European Union has now telegraphed very firmly as of two days ago that they are not going to cut a special deal with Britain. Period. End of statement. And so they're going to say, look, you can take the deal Norway's got. You can take the deal Canada's got or some of the deal we got with somebody else, but you can't make a new deal for you. If you're out, you're out. If you're in, you're in. And there's a serious possibility in my mind that a British exit from the European Union could lead to the unraveling of Europe. I think the Europeans know that and are very concerned. Uh, Prime Minister Renzi from Italy uh, gave a very brave statement the other day where he said, you know, we will survive the British leaving if they choose to leave. But it's very, very dangerous for the Union. Uh, I wish we wouldn't have to go through that. I think that was overly optimistic. I think that the European Union is in serious trouble. Why? Well, the refugee crisis has been a huge part. If you look at the politics of Europe right now, it's going very, very right wing. Uh, France uh, just barely avoided. Barely avoided it. And of course, Austria came within less than 1% of going hard right. I mean, like almost neo-Nazi. Um, you've got uh, places liberal as, as, as the Netherlands is, is extremely right now, going right. So there's a lot of places in Europe. And the reason is because Angela Merkel made this massive mistake called austerity. We've talked a lot about it on this program. But she's been stagnating the economies of Europe under a Teutonic sense of austerity, which is crazy, doesn't work, can't work, won't work. By the way, in Renzi's statement, he commented on the fact that the antidote to Brexit is to end the austerity. Um, yeah. So so I think that the, the European Union is in, is in grave jeopardy. I'm very concerned for them. And I believe that the Fed is watching it. And if, and if, if they see that Brexit's going to occur, they're going to do a calculation. They've already started calculating. What are the impact on the global economy? It will be negative. Um, it'll be particularly negative on, on England, UK. They'll get, they'll get lambasted. Now, it won't happen overnight. Because the day after the vote, the politicians in, in London, in, in number 10 Downing, which is David Cameron, will have to um, start negotiating his position. And my guess is that'll take a couple of years. Uh, and during that period of time, by the way, there's a, one thing that the president of the European Union said just a couple of days ago. They will not negotiate free movement of people if Britain wants to stay in the Union, meaning they will not be able to erect an artificial barrier to immigration. Because one of the hallmarks of the European Union is if you're a European Union citizen anywhere, you're a citizen everywhere in the Shenzhen region. So I'm really, I'm, I'm very nervous about it for Britain. I'm nervous about it for the global economy, but less than I am for Britain. And I'm very, very nervous about it from the point of view of the European Union. 
And so in terms of the Fed's action, uh, you think that the, the Fed decided not to raise rates. Yeah. That was seen, uh, at least what I heard was interpreted as concerns about the U.S. market and and Brexit. But you think that, depending on this vote, they, they may raise rates in July? I think that, first of all, Brexit was a big factor that no one really keyed off of. Uh, the June notes have been published, and uh, they did comment on uh, whether or not increasing interest rates would cause the economy to slow when uh, job growth was less vigorous. But they're smart people. They know how to read real wage gains. They know how to read that stuff. Uh, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the July meeting of the Fed does not require published minutes. June meeting did. So if they really want to have a free-for-all in there and talk, their, tell the truth to each other without there being a written record, July would be the meeting to do it. So I think the July meeting is going to be very important because it's going to tell us a lot about what the Fed's thinking. And um, my guess is that the Fed will do a quarter-point bump. I think they will in July. We'll see. Great. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, so we talked about Brexit here. You know, there's something else that's really interesting in terms of... By the way, does everybody know that they get a quarter-point bump? That, that means it's going to hurt your bonds? Do people know that connection? I don't think so. Okay. So why, you're, why you care about the interest rate, folks, is if you own any bonds or you're thinking of buying bonds and it's got a nice interest rate on it, the face value, meaning the price you pay for that bond, goes down as general interest rates go up. So that's called an inverse ratio. So as the, the, as the interest rates go up, the value, the face value, what you pay for a bond goes down. And that means if you sell a bond you already own, you will lose, in effect, capital. Um, the reverse is also true. The bonds gain in value as interest rates drop. So that's what, just so you'll know why it's important that you know what interest rates are. And it will affect, ultimately, not in the short term, but in the long term, it will affect all the other interest rates you pay, including car loans, mortgages, and long-term money, ultimately. Sorry. No problem. And so while we're there, then who, do, who does the Fed interest rate rise benefit? Well, I think I, I think an interest rate rise is going to benefit everybody in the sense that... Except for bondholders. Right? Yeah, I mean, except for bondholders. And, and I would make a case in the long run they'll be benefited too if the economy is more stable. The, 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 see, you can't operate an economy where you have all, virtually zero borrowing costs. Now, there's some places in the world, Japan, where they actually pay you to borrow money. It's called negative interest rates. Uh, and that's been going on now for 23 years. And uh, Japan has been in kind of recession for 23 years, which is stagnation, actually, in recession. So it doesn't work, and everybody knows that. The challenge is that if you don't start to raise the interest rates, then people never get money for depositing their money in a savings account. So we are, we're basically induced to keep spending everything we've got, consuming, rather than saving. And many people would argue that there's very limited resources available today to the average retiring individual. If they can't get adequate savings return on their money, how do they keep up with or exceed inflation? That's really the question. And um, because the biggest... Second, well, it, up until recently, the biggest uh, wave of, of population in the history of America, the baby boomers, we're all going towards retirement. And as we go towards retirement, um, we are, we've, some of us hopefully have accumulated some savings because our working years are getting to be behind us. And I know for myself, I'd love to be able to get real interest on my money, and it's hard. I, I work hard to do it. In fact, uh, I was very proud of the Academy Advice Fund, Matt, because um, 
This year so far, since January, I believe we're up 7.4%, which is huge. So when you're in an, in an economy with 2% inflation and you're generating a 7.4% return, you're doing well by the seniors. Uh, that 7.4 would be even higher if the interest rates would go up. Because it's so hard to get a return when people don't have to pay money to borrow money. Right. So on the Academy Advised Fund, Ronaldo, if people want to take part in that and uh, basically invest their money with people that we trust and uh, in a fund that we advise, they should just send us an email, right, to info at worldbusiness.org and we can connect them. Yeah, that, that's, that, we, we have no legal relationship other than that we, they listen to the show like you do and they make decisions hopefully in part influenced, they say, by what we say. And, and um, that's the first affirmative is the name of the company. And um, if you're interested in the product that they sell, which is financial advisory services at a very reasonable rate, we did a lot of checking before we picked them. Uh, and uh, we like them. Frankly, I have not only my own, a, a big, well, my retirement account is there, and so is my wife's. So, you know, I, the best thing I can tell you is I did it for myself, and if you're interested, you know, just drop us a line and we'll put you in touch with them. We'll, you'll be working directly with them, though. You don't work with us. We just do what we're doing on the show. So I want to go to another hot spot in the global economy that's deeply concerning. Um, and so let's talk about Venezuela, Ronaldo. You know, I actually visited Venezuela shortly after college, and I found myself to be one of the very few tourists there. Um, it was an amazing country at the time. But everyone, even even back in 2000, what was that, 2006, 2005, I was on the streets of Caracas at night, and all the locals would say, as soon as they realized that I didn't speak Spanish very well, they'd realize they'd say, you, you should go back to your hotel. You might get kidnapped. Like, <laughs> why are you here? And I was surprised by that. But then, you know, after my trip, I looked into it, and Caracas has some of the highest... Uh, crime rates and violence rates in the world, uh, even surpassing Baghdad at the time, which was uh, a little bit out of control. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what's happening there. It, it's actually gotten much worse over the oh, past 10 yeah, years. I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, 87%. This is a very current statistic. Uh, I got this from uh, the New York Times yesterday. 87% of the population, of the entire population of Venezuela does not have enough food to eat. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's apocalypse numbers. Yeah, there was, yeah, and there, there was over fifty food riots yesterday in Venezuela. Over fifty, um, and uh, you know every major city has been militarized. So basically, they have a so the uh, Maduro, who's the president ostensibly, who lost badly in the elections, um, so he doesn't control the Congress anymore. But he's ruling basically by fiat now, by by dictatorial powers, and. Um, his, he, he doesn't understand economics, obviously. So the country is collapsing. Why is it collapsing? Well, yes, they've been hurt badly by the drop in oil prices. No question. But you don't see Saudi Arabia collapsing. And Venezuela has as much or more proven resources as Saudi Arabia. And the crude they pump is it's called sweet crude. It's highest value crude. Oh, is it? Yeah, sweet crude. So Venezuela has this enormous resource in oil. Uh, and I, I don't know. Do you know of any other oil country that's not at war? Meaning, you take out Iraq, take out you know those kind of things. But does anybody that's that's doing terrible, that's imploding? And the answer is no. There's not one other country, oil country. And the reason they're imploding well, is because maybe of, North Korea, but other than that's that, not an oil country. Oh, oil. I sorry. Yeah. So my point is, it's not the oil prices they keep blaming. It's it's all about mass mis- mismanagement. I mean, mismanagement on a on a scale like. We haven't seen since the Middle Ages. I mean, this is like a guy in his castle, you know, 
cursing at the peasants for coming to storm the castle when they can't eat. Um, Maduro is so distracted and so disconnected from ordinary reality that he doesn't understand what he's done, so he doesn't know how to fix it. You know, right now, uh, it is common for people to break into stores uh, and to steal anything uh, because they're, they're literally hungry beyond belief. Uh, it's clearly a powder keg. Uh, the legislature tried to get Maduro to step down. He refused, and that's when he declared all these martial law orders. Um, I think that um, it is probably going to end up in, vi- in considerable violence. It already is violent, uh, but I think that you're going to see a, 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 probably a, an armed rebellion. And at some point, the police and the military are not going to fire on the population. It's, it's, it's an amazing crisis. Uh, All caused by leadership. And, and it's also incredible, too, because people are watching this happen. Some people are paying close attention and want to help. But Venezuela has a policy of not accepting humanitarian relief. So you can't send them money right now in a legal way. And you really don't want to anyway because you don't know what will get there. Well, that and I mean, you know, even the subsidized food that they're trying to get out to the population uh, is is being smuggled out and sold in yeah. Colombia over the border. I mean, it's it's a real it's disaster. A, it's it's an implosion. It's 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 literally, you know, it's sort of like what the Middle Ages must have been like. Honest to God, it's so bad. And 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 there's no reason for it. I mean, it, it, you could fix Venezuela if it wanted to be fixed. Uh, the people are industrious. It had decent infrastructure. Um, it had a decent agricultural economy, which was they've destroyed that too now. Uh, they had a decent level of education for a country in, in Central Latin America. Uh, you know, I just, in fact, you take a country like Uruguay, for example, which is a crown jewel with good government, really good government, and no oil, no, I mean, they have water, they have arable land, but that's about all. They don't have much else. And, and they're extremely stable and prosperous because of good government. I think it was Kofi Annan when he was head of the United Nations and he was talking about Africa, which is because he was African. And he was saying, you know, the number one problem that's keeping Africa broken is basically corrupt leadership and mismanagement. And if you tell you fix that, you can't fix anything. And that's really true. And it's, you're seeing it in spades in Venezuela. You know, he'd like to be the, the Castro of his day. And Maduro isn't even, you know, he's not even, I mean, he's like, he's just out to lunch. I mean, it's, it's quite tragic. I feel very sorry. My heart goes out to the people in Venezuela. But I do not think it will stop prior to an armed insurrection. There's a vote to re- to recall him and to shut him down, right. isn't there? But yeah, but he's not paying attention. Yeah. The legislature already voted to do that, and he wouldn't listen. Well, it's a scary situation. I, you know, I do think that, and you, you you look at some of the trends. You look at Brexit. You look at that. You look like you look at some of the other meltdowns in kind of the 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 existing order uh, in the world, and and it's really interesting the the tipping point we're at. Um, oh, listen, Matt, I get to. The million refugees this year, and I heard that there were 13,000 Africans alone died trying to get to Europe. And it's 6.5 million total displaced people around the globe, something like that. Oh, it's more than that now. A I million think. going to Europe from yeah. war zones. Yeah, and I think that you're going to see that million's going to rise to 2 million, to 3 million, to 5 million, and more. Um, you're going to see, uh, it's, it's, it's just happening. I mean, by the way, you know, bad government isn't constrained to just developing countries no i would look look at the european union i mean well and look at the u.s senate and the u.s senate look at what happened just yesterday i cannot believe that the u.s senate was unable to vote to to ban the purchase of a weapon to people who were known terrorists 
So you you can be on the no-fly list and you can still walk in and buy a gun legally. That makes no sense. Either the no-fly list is a joke, and I don't think it is, or it's insane to say you can't board an airplane, but you can shoot one down. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Now, how could the United States Senate not pass that? How could they not pass legitimate background checks? I mean, if, if the gun lobby doesn't pull it back, uh, they're going to lead themselves into a situation where their base of support is going to be decimated at the polls. 89% of the American public want some rational gun rules. Uh, they're not talking about taking your guns away, folks. They're talking about having rational gun rules. Well, and, and gun owners are some of the biggest proponents of, of you know, doing background checks and, and making sure that people with on the terrorist watch list aren't able to get guns. Yeah. I mean, they, they understand the power of firearms. Yeah. And you know, the guy, the shooter in Orlando, he was on and off that watch list. And technically, he was off the day he bought the weapons. But it wouldn't matter if he was on it because he still could have bought them. Right. And it's like people say, well, he wasn't on the watch list that day. Right, but even if he was, it wouldn't matter. And he was off and on it twice. Uh, at some point, you know, and, 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 and I believe it was a Republican who suggested it, and I think it was a good idea. If you are afraid that the government, the United States government, is your enemy and that the Justice Department is going to go out of its way to take guns away, and so you want some impartial arbiter between you and your gun or with your gun and you and the government, well, some Republicans suggested, why don't we make it that if you object to uh, being on the watch list or the terrorist uh, watch list or on the no-fly list, you can take it to court. And you can have the court adjudicate whether you belong to that. If the court agrees with you, you don't, then you get to buy a gun again. So it's not like you can't go to court and get your gun back. That, would, that was one of the compromises, and even that was not enough. Right. So what it's really about is gun manufacturers who basically fund the NRA. Gun manufacturers want to keep selling more and more and more and more guns, they want people to be more and more afraid, so they'll buy more and more and more guns. It's, it's getting worse than when Wyatt Earp cleaned up Tombstone, Arizona. And I always love telling people, you know, the first rule Wyatt Earp passed when he went as sheriff, marshal rather, to Tombstone, Arizona, is he said, if you're coming into town, leave your guns at the sheriff's office on the edge of town, and when you leave, you can take them with you. There's no reason to have a gun in Tombstone unless you want to kill somebody, and we don't kill people in Tombstone anymore. So when you clean up the, what was the worst town in the West with a simple rule. Check your guns on the outskirts of town, pick them up on your way out of town. They got to keep their guns. They just had to check them when they were in that urban you know, environment. I, um, I, I think that uh, even Wayne LaPierre agrees that you can't, um, that it's not wise to have guns um, in bars where people are drinking heavily, thank God. Wayne LaPierre being the head of the NRA. Um, you wonder, and he also agrees, that it's not technically legal yet to own a bazooka <laughs> or a machine gun or a shoulder-fired missile, or a tank. So why is it legal to own an AK-47, I mean, AR-47? Why, why is it legal to own that, which has its only purpose with a minor adaptation to be able to kill 100 people in, in a minute? Yeah. It's, it's more than one person a second. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It is crazy. And, yeah, I mean, my, my, I, think that, I think you're right. I think, I think what we're looking at is a tipping point and a decision point and it keeps being reflected in kind of the split that we see, even Brexit, you know, the, the split we see in American politics. Are we going to, to blame immigrants and blame the, the people who have been the victims a lot of the economic devastation uh, and the continuing rise in inequality? For and continue, continue to splinter among, uh, or along these lines? Or are we going to 
uh, come together and actually figure out what we can do to make make the world a better and safer place. You know, it's a huge question mark. And depending on which day you ask me, I'll tell you a different answer because it kind of well, today. What's the answer today? I'm hopeful today. Why? Um, I don't know. I think it's because Diablo Canyon, we're, we're making some progress there. I think it's because uh, there are tons of solutions on to some of our biggest problems. And I think that the, I trust democracy as much as we have it left in the world, that people are going to end up voting with their hearts instead of their fear-based, you know, kind of stories they're telling themselves in their minds. Well, you know, we'll do a follow-up program on politics uh, because I think we could be at a turning point. I, I mean, I think without getting into the presidential race, I think we could be witnessing the end of the Republican Party. Now, the fact is it started in 1860, so it's not been here forever. I mean, it, was, it didn't start until 100 years after the Republic. But, but um, it's interesting. We haven't had that many times when a major political party's died. The Whigs died just before the Republicans took, took their place. Uh, the Federalists died before them, I believe. So, you know, it's, it's happened before, and it will happen again, likely. But it seems to me like the, the Republican Party, the wheels are coming off the, off the wagon. And we see the same thing in the Democratic Party in a lot of ways. There's some pretty fundamental splits there. You know, I don't think it's nearly as dire in terms of the existential question for the Democratic Party. But it could, you could see, uh, with a little more pressure and a little more uh, grease, uh, uh, some some of that fissuring between the the two, you know, Bernie know. and Hillary, I, I leading know. to some sort of split. There. I don't, I don't think so. No, I think that's, you know, that's like um, I think news people make a horse race where there isn't one. I mean, look, Bernie's already said point blank. Number one objective is to defeat Donald Trump. You can't defeat Donald Trump if you're fighting with your other with your allies. And and the truth is that he, <laughs> Bernie can declare victory. Really, I mean, he has really pushed Hillary to a more progressive agenda than she would have been willing to take. And I don't think she can change now because she needs the Bernie Elizabeth Warren wing of the party right. to get elected. I mean, the only thing I would say is that Bernie doesn't necessarily speak for all the Bernie voters. As much as we love Bernie, who, those of us who are big fans of his, uh, myself included, just to be honest, I, I don't think that he he necessarily is a leader per se in that they're going to follow him. I think he started something and... The, the, the reason he uses we and the reason he talks about the group effort is because he was running on a set of principles as opposed to I'm the one to lead you to victory. So we'll see. I, we'll I, see. I'll be interested to see. And we weren't going to talk politics, so we slipped here. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do a further job next time. But yeah. I'll tell you, I'm, I would wonder in your heart of hearts, Matt, when you get into that polling place and the curtain closes, whether you would be more frightened to get Donald Trump as a default president. <laughs> and remember, Trump doesn't have to win for Hillary to lose. It could be Paul Ryan. So more on that later, folks. Yeah. So let's let's talk about something else that, you know, is kind of the question mark that is, is probably something that's necessary and not a lot of people are talking about at the moment. And, although, and that's the concept of uh, cooling the planet intentionally. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have... We have some serious heat going on today in the West here. Uh, what was your first clue? The fact that the whole state's <laughs> on fire? Or, I mean, we're on fire all the way to Texas at this point, I think, or close to it, Arizona. Yeah, yeah I mean, it feels hotter than normal. Uh, and that's because it is. This is going to be the hottest year in history, uh, or in, in human history. Um, and we're, we're looking at some serious changes and the climate accords that reached some really important benchmarks uh, obviously didn't go fast enough or far enough. This should have been done 30 years ago. We're behind the eight ball. And 
The question is, are we going to have some technological approaches to actually regulating the temperature of the entire planet? Yeah. Well, um, so, so that's a great question, and, and this raises one of my favorite subjects. It's called geoengineering. In fact, I'd like to take a little bit of time on this one because it's, it can be complex. The word geoengineering means to basically engineer a solution at a planetary-wide scale. Uh, when I was a young man, I've told this story to several people, I had the great good fortune of working with some really fabulously talented, uh, advanced physicists. Uh, one of them was a guy named Jerry O'Neill. And Jerry was the head of the Princeton Astrophysics Lab for a number of years. Uh, he, legendary guy in terms of what he basically created and wrote about. Uh, was the first person to completely describe in detail how you could have a permanent colony manned in space and how people could live on it normally, etc. Uh, and, and if you ever saw any of those Disney movies where they, you see this like looks like a big wheel spinning in space, that's Jerry. That's what he came up with, and Disney adopted it. Uh, and, and I've read the books on it and gotten to know Jerry personally before he passed away. And, and he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And what Jerry uh, and a bunch of us back in the 70s, early 70s, um, we were talking about, and I belong to a thing that most people don't even know existed called the Society of Space Lawyers. There were five of us. <laughs> How I got it is an interesting statement. But anyway, uh, Jerry was part of our mentor group in that space lawyers group. And uh, what we did is we started looking with Jerry at how would you terraform a planet, meaning terra, the planet Earth is sometimes referred to as terra firma, form, meaning how would you make some place like terra, like Earth. And so we picked Mars, which is kind of interesting. We're sort of ahead of our time in the early 70s. And we said, okay, if you landed a bunch of people on Mars, what would it take to re be able to repopulate Mars because you'd have to create an artificial environment, artificial atmosphere. Um, you know, you get all kinds of questions. We, we didn't know there was any water on Mars. Now we do know, which is great because that makes it a lot easier. And um, so we started looking at all the different steps you would take from the day you landed on a, a rover to the day you had a, a permanent livable colony there. And um, we stopped working together as a group because a lot of very exciting things happened. Uh, Jerry pioneered what became GPS. I worked on that project with them before it ever existed and how to make it work and all that sort of thing. And, and uh, he went on, as I said, did a lot of work on space colonization, did a lot of work on what's called mass drivers, which is the way you move asteroids from so they won't hit the Earth if you know they're coming. Anyway, he did a lot of interesting things. And so we got carried away doing all kinds of things. And, and I got more involved increasingly in, in public interest law and, and communications and whatnot. So we kind of broke apart, and um, I never thought about it for like 30 years. I go, boy, what was that all about? And then all of a sudden, it hit me with like a thunderbolt. Oh, my God. I know why I did all that terraforming work with, Ter with Jerry O'Neill. It was because the, the planet we had to make like Earth was Earth. Right. In other words, what we were learning. So I could tell you so much stuff about how you make a planet like Earth that it got me thinking as climate change started running muck. Um, what would we do to save our planet? Because we only have one of them. You know, Elon Musk, who I'm sure our listeners know, uh, had SpaceX as well as Tesla. And one of the reasons he started SpaceX is because he wants to get off the planet. He wants to go to Mars. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to take a tour of the SpaceX facility. And the first thing you see when you walk in is a big picture. And one is a picture of Mars now and then a picture of Mars as it could be. And it's much greener. Yeah. So yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. A clearly the first thing they want you to see. And, you know, and he was definitely like he was like I was doing terraforming of Mars in 1970s. That's I hate to tell you how long ago that was. <laughs> Do the math, folks. And you now Elon Musk, one of the brightest entrepreneurs on the planet, 
comes up with, okay, I better build a rocket ship because i got to get to Mars because it's too late to save this planet. And if you got him in a quiet mood privately, I think it's what you tell you. It's easier to get a rocket ship to Mars now than it is to save the planet Earth. That's how bad it is. We are past the tipping point, folks. Meaning, if we went to zero carbon dioxide tomorrow morning, we don't have enough time to save the planet unless we address the heat. We've got to address the heat because it's causing massive releases of methane. And the methane's far more deadly than CO2 at this point. So everyone knows who listens to this show, I'm sure, how climate change works. But essentially, the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse trapping, uh, heat trapping greenhouse gases we've emitted create a, a blanket uh, that don't allow solar radiation to escape, thus creating a oven, and we're cooking ourselves. Um, part of that effect is the melting ice caps and sea level rise. But, Ronaldo, the piece you're talking about is the release of methane that's currently deep in permafrost and under the ocean in uh, ice form. Is that right? Yeah, in, in hydrates, in, in, uh, in the solid state. Ice might be a strong word, but in the solid form. Hydrates. And it's yeah. kept, the hydrate is kept there by pressure and temperature. So it's cold. It's really cold at the bottom of the ocean, and it's really a lot of pressure because every foot you go down, you're adding another, um, what, seven pounds as, as a gallon of water. So you're, you're adding many atmospheres of pressure as you go down in the ocean. And that's why when people go down and you see them in these uh, bathyscopes, these are like little round balls that are incredibly strong walls that can go down, you know, like four or five miles into the ocean uh, because they have such pressure to withstand. Um, the, the, the geoengineering subject, though, what, what that really raises is the fact that you can actually start to rechill the planet. And why that's important is if you rechill the planet, meaning if you drop the temperature down temporarily, that will permit the planet to restabilize. Um, when you take and melt all the ice in, the, in for example, try finding ice in the Arctic this summer, you ain't going to see much. Um, and, and all that ice that's missing used to reflect sunlight back into space. And that's, that's, uh, that, 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 that effect um, is, is very critical because when that ice doesn't sit, isn't existing, doesn't sit there, then all that solar energy, 87% of which, I believe 85, 86% of it, which would have been bounced back into the... Um, the, the, the sky back into the space, it all gets absorbed by the planet and heats it. That's called the albedo effect, A-L-B-E-D-O. Um, that has a huge implication because what it's doing is causing the oceans to warm faster. Um, and as the oceans warm faster, it's now charged, causing the currents. To, to, I'm going to come back to the currents in a second. There's an anomaly that was detected about three months ago in the currents that's absolutely frightening. Um, but but I but I say this because we can, and in fact, the Academy has a plan for how to lower the Earth's temperature. When you have a child that's sick, they have a fever. The last thing you want to do is put them in hot water. They'll kill them. What you want to do is put them in a bath of lukewarm or cooler water so you can bring their temperature down. And that's that child is our planet. We need to bring its temperature down, or it will uh, eliminate the source of the infection. You know, infection causes heat, right? The yeah. source of the infection is humans. And so the way it's going to eliminate us is the way it's doing it now, with the millions and millions of refugees, which will become tens of millions, ultimately hundreds of millions, and then one day billions. And, um, you know, with people, people kill really quick if they can't get water, usually within five days. People will kill pretty soon if they can't get food for a couple of weeks. So it's like we have to realize we're creating a situation that's so destabilized that if we don't help the planet get cooler, we're causing a disruption of all these indigenous peoples all over the world. I'm talking Asia, Africa, uh, you name it. 
they're all in, in terrible crisis. And um, we need to cool the planet so that the methane stops gurgling up from the oceans in massive quantities. I started to mention about the ocean current. Keep your eyes on this one, folks. There is a patch of blue, blue water, meaning very cold water, in the northern latitudes right now. Uh, and what's weird is it's not supposed to be there. So if you look at the ocean temperature all around it, you'll see that it's much warmer. So people began to ask, why is this patch of blue, cold water there? And then oceanographers started looking at it and said, oh my God, the current's breaking down. Because normally what happens when you have cold water up north is it drops into what's called the conveyor belt. The conveyor belt takes that cold water down towards the equatorial regions. And as it's doing that, it's pumping warmer water that rises up to the north. So this constant transition from cold water by the poles to warm water at the equator back to cold water, that is what causes the Earth's currents to operate. Now, the most powerful climatical forces on the world, by far, in the world, are the jet stream, which is what controls the way the wind blows around the world. We've totally decimated that. It's, it's completely dysfunctional at this point. And the second set of things that's powerful, in fact, more powerful than the jet stream, are ocean currents. We've now altered the ability of the ocean currents to function properly. The implications of that are staggering. So if people want to know more information about this, please be, be sure to ask us. Uh, we're happy to tell you some of the solutions we think would work, but until people decide they have to have a solution, they don't do anything. And I, I just want to end on this. It's a good time to point out about, uh, you, you talked about solutions earlier, I just talked about solutions. Every single person listening, no exceptions, every single one of you listening to this, you must immediately go to info at worldbusiness.org and tell us you want to get a free subscription, absolutely free, to our service called the Optimist Daily. What it is, is five stories you can read in less than a minute about optimistic, mean positive solutions that are happening somewhere in the world you didn't even know about. Why is this so important? Because we have to change our consciousness. We have to go from believing there's nothing we can do and it's hopeless to, oh my gosh, there's more solutions than there are problems if we just go put them into place. See, I think the thing that's defeating human society, human civilization right now, is our cynicism, our greed, and most of all, our inability to accept that we are the ones that can and should make a difference. So if you want to do anything at all, anything to change the outcome of the planet for your children, your grandchildren, or other people's children and grandchildren, we, we've only got very few years left, very, very few, less than 35. So let's get our consciousness shifted now so we can re-envision a civilization that works for humans. The planet will be here in a hundred years. We may not be. Yeah. The planet will be fine. Well, the good news is, and the reason I love the optimist, is I, and the reason I'm optimistic today, as I said earlier, is I think that the consciousness is shifting. Uh, I think we have, we are shaking off the, uh, the old skin or the old shell and expanding into the new reality. And yeah, it's, it's, it's rife with struggle and big question marks. And geoengineering is one of those extreme steps that I, I agree now is unfortunately necessary. Uh, it's controversial because it does mean tampering with uh, systems that people say we shouldn't tamper with. Oh, you know but, the reason it's controversial? Yeah. No, the environmentalists, and I'm an environmentalist, uh, environmentalists are afraid to talk about it because they think it'll take the pressure off right. of reducing CO2. And hey, folks, if there's anybody in the world who's 
adamant about reducing CO2. It's us. The World Business Academy is fighting that battle at the barricades every single day. So the fact that we know how to do geoengineering does not reduce our incentive to reduce the problem now by eliminating fossil fuels. But that's not enough anymore. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think that, you know, and, and, and we probably want to cover geoengineering more as it develops because it's starting to enter the popular discussion, which is really amazing in some ways because it's been off the, off, the, off the table for a long time. You weren't even I, mean, I started talking about this, I'm going to say, 10 years ago. And my environmental friends said, oh, don't say that because it'll like, give, the, give the commercial interest the reason to keep polluting. <laughs> well, no, it's, look, you gotta, if, if we're going to break this thing, we've got to fix it. And, and, and you've seen the article I wrote a long time ago. I mean, it must have been 15 years ago on global reconstruction. Okay? It, it's not enough to stop damaging the planet. We've got to start repairing it. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And please do send us your thoughts at info at worldbusiness.org. Uh, I'll send out a link, in, and it'll be in the show notes here, to sign up for The Optimist Daily. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts about that. And tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ronaldo.